I'm Rachel Hernandez, real estate investor turned mobile home investor and best-selling author. I make a living investing in mobile homes for cash flow for long-term passive income. After many mistakes and lessons learned, I've been able to create the kind of life where I can do the types of things I want to do, not have to do. I created the Adventures in Mobile Homes podcast to share with you what I've learned so you can spend more time with family, friends, and do things you love. Mobile home investing can help you get there. If you want to hear real stories with practical and actionable advice you can use from someone who's been in the trenches and who's still investing today to create the type of life you love, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Well, hey there, and welcome back to another episode of the Adventures of Mobile Homes podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Hernandez, aka Mobile Home Girl of AdventuresofMobileHomes.com. Thank you so much for joining me here on the 80th episode of the podcast. Now, just in case you missed it, be sure to check out the last episode where I talk about my video commentary on my latest update and market insight on the real estate industry and how it affects mobile home investors, including the behind the scenes of what I've been doing for my own mobile home investing business and other projects that I'm working on. You can check it out at www.adventuresofmobilehomes.com slash 79. So today I'm going to share with you another guest interview with my good podcaster and real estate investor friend, Sharon Vornholt. Now, Sharon is an expert when it comes to probates as a lead generation strategy as a real estate investor. She knows the ins and outs of finding probate sellers, working these types of leads, and the entire process of finding and closing probate leads from beginning to end. And today, Sharon is going to talk about her real estate investing journey, and how she got into probates as a real estate investor, including her experience as a rehabber and buy and hold landlord, and her journey eventually becoming a wholesaler. We're going to be talking about what exactly is a probate and how to find these types of leads and why, including the pros and cons of doing it. We also talk about Sharon's investment criteria, including her exit strategy when she works probate leads, as well as how she determines which areas she buys in and doesn't buy in. Plus, she gives advice on building a team, including life as a probate real estate investor, marketing tips, and more. Now, I wanted to interview Sharon specifically because she's got the expertise down on the subject. Plus, she's a good friend of mine. We've known each other a very long time. And I've actually received probate types of leads in the past, specifically as a mobile home investor. So if you'd like to learn more, be sure to tune in to this interview and definitely stay for the entire conversation because you don't want to miss out on Sharon's special free gift to you at the end just for being a valued listener of the show. So are you ready? Here goes! 
Hi, y'all. This is Rachel Hernandez, a.k.a. Mobile Home Girl of AdventuresInMobileHomes.com. Thank you so much for joining me here on another episode of the podcast. So today I have my good real estate investor and podcaster friend, Sharon Vornhalt, on the show. Now, me and Sharon have known each other for forever and a day. She is great. She will be talking today about probate. She will also be talking about life as a probate investor, as well as, you know, some of the other things that she has done, including wholesaling. I've known her for a while. I have been a guest on her podcast as well, too. And she'll talk about all her po- uh, things about her podcast as well, too. So without further ado, I wanted to go ahead and uh, welcome Sharon to the show. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on, Sharon. I really appreciate you coming on uh, the show to talk about your journey as a real estate investor. I wanted to talk more about your journey into probates and probate investing because I've actually gotten a few probate leads over the years in terms of Mm -hmm. mobile homes. And um, let's just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your journey, how you got started in real estate investing. Well, it was kind of a, a weird path. You know, growing up as a kid, my dad was a contractor. So I followed him around on job sites. He did light commercial and things like that. So I had an introduction to construction. However, when I started working, I worked um, in research and development and then later in uh, the medical field. So from there, though, I always wanted my own business. And I opened up a home inspection company in 1991, which was a real estate related business. Through that, I met a lot of realtors and one of them invited me to go to a RIA meeting, which I had no idea what a RIA meeting was at that time. I only knew that there were realtors. So I went to that meeting uh, around um, 1998. So that's when I began investing in for, um, well, I owned the other business for 17 years. So about 10 years, I invested part-time, you know, was buying a, a rental here and there, doing a rehab. I started right out rehabbing, which is probably not the smartest thing to do, but that's what I did. And that's what I love doing. And then in 2008, when the, uh, we all know what happened 2008, the real estate crash, um, I closed the other business and I became a full-time real estate investor. Well, that was the best of times and the worst of times because everything was on sale. Now, up until that time, you know, I was buying uh, buying property and doing some rehabs. And at that time, no one could get a retail mortgage. So I had these properties and I thought, well, what am I going to do? I don't want to rehab these properties and then have them sit a year while someone tries to get a mortgage if they can. And I don't want to rent out a brand new rental so or a brand new a rehab that was intended to be sold to a retail buyer. So that's when I became an accidental wholesaler. I just literally it was the first deal I had ever wholesaled in 10 years. And I just wholesaled those properties and I was really good at marketing. I had marketed really old school that we're talking before the internet, Rachel. So <laughs> around the time it came around 1991, right. everybody was doing direct mail marketing. And I was really good at that, those types of hands-on marketing and in-person marketing. So I just took those uh, and segued them over to real estate. And I always worked off-market deals. And it was about, because I didn't want to get in there and scrap around with, uh, you know, you've got a unique business model and I 
had a unique business model in that I didn't want to be in there with all the other realtors and investors on the MLS for deals. So I just kept on marketing to off for off-market properties. And it was during that period of time that I discovered probates quite by accident. Okay. Okay. And let's talk about your marketing because I know this is not something that I'm really good at. I know in the beginning that direct mail was a big portion of your marketing plan. Is Can you tell us a little bit about that? And is that how you kind of accidentally found these leads and probate? Well, I just kept digging around and I, I discovered those. But yes, um, so direct mail marketing, Rachel, is still very much a thing today for off-market deals. You have to have a way to contact these people for all the different lists. You know, off-market deals are everything that's not on the MLS. It's where you do very targeted list uh, targeted mailings. But yes, I was... I just stumbled across probates. And at that time, or in 2008, there was almost zero competition, practically zero competition. Okay. It was also zero information on how to work these deals. And because nobody, there was no information on the probate process about what they're going through or any of it. So that was something I had to learn from start to finish myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's dial it back down. Can you tell us exactly what a probate is mm-hmm. and what is the process of tracking down, in your opinion, these leads, these probate leads? Well, probate in its simplest form is a legal process that is takes place when someone passes away and they have a certain amount of, in, of asset. Now, there are things called small estates. It depends on your your state. It could be if your assets total under $25,000, you don't have to go through probate. But in general, anybody that owns property or has a large amount of assets, they're going to go through probate because the uh, government wants their share of the estate if there is a share. You know, mm-hmm. you know how that works. So the, pro- the straight right. line process is, and this works pretty true in every state. There are some nuances from state to state. So wherever you are, you need to look up the probate process for your state. But what happens is someone passes away and then the estate is opened. So that someone in the family will open the estate. Then it is determined if there's a will, if there's a will that is called testate. And in that will, it would say, for instance, I named Rachel to administer my estate. So that person is named. In the absence of a will that's in test state, the court will appoint the next logical person. So let's assume that uh, someone in your family died without a will and like the husband died and the spouse would be the next logical person. Or in the event there was no spouse, it would be the the child or children. So there is a hierarchy of how this is all done, but you just need to know that the court takes care of this. Now, once this person is uh, named, they'll get a formal paperwork called the letters of testamentary. They call them the letters. This is what means uh, what would mean to you if you were looking at a property and you weren't sure this was the person that could sell the property. This is the documentation. So once okay. the estate is opened, the, the person is appointed. I call that person the decision maker. That's either the executor or the administrator. And they're jointly referred to as the personal representative. So you'll hear people say the personal representative. It's an either or situation. Mm-hmm. But that person is the, deci- the decision maker. And that is the person that can sign a real estate contract. And when you come across an, a probate deal, you could be talking to someone who's showing the property. And that's okay. It could be an aunt 
parent or a, a friend or someone that just happens to be the person who's doing that. But you need to find out who the decision maker is. Who can actually sign the real estate contract? And that's the person you will write. That's the person that is acting on behalf of the deceased. Okay. So, so if you notice the the person passes away, the estate is opened, and then then they the decision maker is all sorted out. And then next, what happens is you can sell the property. After all the assets in the estate will be converted to cash to pay, what happens next is to pay the creditors. Then the heirs get what's left before the estate is closed. So as you can see, if you are an heir in an estate, you're way down on the list. You're at the very bottom before the estate is closed. So you need to work these while the estate is open. If it says the estate is closed, you've missed the boat when you when you gotcha. find these leads. So you can buy the property approximately in the middle of the process because they're going to sell real property, personal property. Mm -hmm. uh, anything that's not directly willed will be put in a pot. It should be put in a, a bank account. You're required by the IRS to get a tax ID number and to have a place to hold all the money in that estate. And that would include things like income from rental property. Often people pass away. They've got their personal residence. They've got rental property. And all this money has to be strictly accounted for because when it comes time to pay the creditors, that is going to come out of that pot. Now, people always say, who are the creditors? Well, the creditors, of course, would be anybody such as if there's a mortgage on any of the property, credit cards, car payments, those would be logical people. But there are also attorney bills, hospital bills, nursing home bills, funeral expenses, all of the things that would settle this debts of the deceased have to be taken care of. And then and only then do the heirs get what's left. So that's an important distinction. They are very motivated to get this done so that they can get what they're inheriting. Right, exactly. Now, I had a situation, I think it was a week or two weeks ago, where there was a property in probate and an heir called me. But the heir made it clear that there was an executor involved. She was not the personal representative, but she wanted me to take a look at the mobile home to, you know, see what I could do to help her sell the home. Because I am actually wholesaling mobile homes now, <laughs> Sharon. Yeah. I don't know if I've told you that. But the thing is, I wasn't sure if she was the decision maker because she's not the executor. How does that even work when you're... Because a lot of times the heirs would call me or an mm -hmm. attorney would call me or attorney's mm -hmm. office, but mm -hmm. I'm not working with either the administrator or executor. I mean, how would you work some situation like that? Well, that's a, that's okay because sometimes the executor is in another state or whatever. So anyone can show you the property, but when you write the contract, that's when you need to know who is the executor mm -hmm. and you, you write it to them. So the seller is the executor or the administrator. The seller is the personal representative. So the, it's a fine for the heir to show you the property. They may have gotten ahead of the executor. That's why I say you need the, you need the contact information for the executor because okay. the heir has no legal right to sell the property unless they are also the personal representative. 
Okay. Yeah. Cause I got into this conversation and the air was like, well, the executor doesn't want to like do any kind of fix up. They don't want to fix up the house or I mean, maybe there's no funds there. You know, I, I have no mm -hmm. idea, you know, in the estate, but she made it clear that she was not the personal representative. So well, she that's knew, she knew then she knew that she couldn't sell the property. But that's okay. <laughs> right, right, right. So, you know, she got me involved, wanted me to take a look. So that's something I just kind of wanted to bring you in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's fine. Way. Yeah, that's fine. And what will happen is you don't ever have to worry about doing this wrong. Mm -hmm. Because what will happen is when you, now you all close differently than us. So that's it. If it's a single family home or a commercial property or whatever, mm -hmm. when they would run the title, the uh, attorney would catch that this person did not have the right to sell the property. Right. So there's a there's a backstop. Now, how that works, I know that you all are selling them as personal property. That's correct, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I would say... To consult with an attorney and ask what are the what safeguard is in place for that. But you always need to know what remember, go back to the letters. Say to the heir, I need to see the paperwork from the executor, the letters of testamentary. Okay. And then that in that paperwork, it will say Rachel Hernandez is the person that can sell this property. Okay. Okay. Good to know. So Good to that's, know. That's your safe, that's really your safeguard right there. So, you know, we've got this. You know, say we're in a situation, we've got this lead, it's probate, we're already working with whether it's the heir, the executor, the administrator. So let's say you do write up a contract because you had mentioned you do wholesaling. How does that work with closing? Do you do an assignment for your deals or do you double close and how do you... Do you have your buyers already lined up or do you actually close on it first and then do some fix up work or do you just kind of sell it as is to your buyer? How does that work with the wholesaling process with probates? Well, with a wholesaling process, it could be, remember that probates are just a lead source. So mm -hmm. any, whatever your strategy is, is still your strategy exactly the way you would do it. Now, okay. what I would typically do when wholesaling the property, I would... We haven't really talked about this, but in deciding which properties to go after, I went for properties that I wanted or I knew my buyer's list wanted. You only need a half a dozen of really top-notch buyers that are building portfolios or doing constant fix and flips. You don't need a million. You need a handful <laughs> of people. Right. So when I was compiling my list, then I would look at those. I took out everything in really bad areas and I took out anything that was in really expensive areas because they were never going to be wholesaled mm -hmm. and they were never going to be sold as distressed properties. So I would have what I'd call bread and butter in the step above those type of properties. Now, I knew my buyers list well and I would know when I looked at a property, probably who was going to buy it. It would be the same in mobile homes. If somebody were wholesaling mobile homes and you were the buy and hold person, they would say, well, Rachel only buys over here. She doesn't buy over here. She mm -hmm. doesn't She doesn't like that. So it's the same exact thought process. But I, to answer your question, I double close. I don't like I mean, there is a situation where you could do a hoteling thing where maybe the house is a mess. You could clean it out and then you could wholesale it for a little more money. Mm -hmm. You could do that. You could even do that while, you know, you could agree to do that. You could sell the, 
the house to your end buyer and say, I'll have it cleaned out and and charge the higher price. Maybe they don't want to fool with it. You mm-hmm. can do all of those same things that you always do. Now, the only time I closed on a property is if I was going to rehab it or if I was going to keep it for a rental. If I'm just wholesaling the property, I, w- I like a nice, clean trail of paperwork. A, if I'm assigning a home where I'm going to make ten dollars or $15,000 on it and the seller sees on that uh, settlement statement that I'm going, that I've gotten them down to whatever price it is, mm-hmm. but but I stand to profit ten dollars or $15,000 on a property or $5,000, whatever it is, then they're going to be mad. They're going, there are a lot of closings that have blown up at the closing table for that very reason. In my area, it costs another $500 to do that second closing. And I like the cleanness of the paperwork. You buy and you sell and you can still do it with no money out of your own pocket because it's about the signing, the order of the signing of the paperwork. You know, the attorneys don't do anything wrong. In other words, your your sellers would be in one room and you would be in your room with your end buyer, who's all, always a an investor for me. Mm-hmm. So we would sign the paperwork. If you think about a closing, you have to have certified funds for a regular real estate closing, like for a, a single family or multifamily property. You have to have certified funds. So the attorney would have the check in his possession, but no money changes hands at this stage. He can then walk back into the room where we buy the property with total confidence and know that when he pays the the seller out of his escrow, but prior to putting the check in the escrow, Mm -hmm. that the money is there. So you can double close all day long with no money out of your pocket. I, I personally don't like assigning contracts unless it's for just a couple thousand dollars. Okay. Yeah, that's the opposite of what I do. <laughs> well, I, well, and you're in a you're in a different you're maybe you know, I mean it's a matter of some uh, closing attorneys have a way of keeping that off of the settlement statement. I'm, it gets to be a really uncomfortable argumentative state sometimes when people see that you've negotiated a great deal for yourself. They're not making however much you make. I don't know what you make on a typical uh, wholesale on a mobile home. What is that? And you know, do you have a typical amount? I made eight grand a couple months ago in three days. (laughs) Exactly. But the seller knew exactly what I was making because I said like, hey, listen, what do you want to make? My approach is different. They told me, I'm like, are you cool if I make, you know, above? And they're like, I don't care, you know? So it's just a different approach, Mm -hmm. you know? But they know exactly how how much I'm making. They just kind of want to know. They just want what they want. And if they they ask too high, then I, you know, I put it on the market. Then we got to lower it. I had to do that with, you know, a distressed property. There was all kinds of Mm -hmm. issues, plumbing issues and all that. Then we just have to have a conversation. So it's a lot of back and forth for me though. But I do take a lot of time when I work with sellers. The first meeting could be two hours. So, you know, and you can always, you know, a lot of times too, I'll tell them honestly that I'm going to partner with somebody who's my end buyer. And I explained to them that there's a difference, you know, because there we're going to do fix up. I go into great detail and they'll say, well, I want this much. And you have to tell them, I can't give you this much because we're going to have to put money into the property. And they'll say something like, well, a vanity only cost $129. And I always made a joke and said, do I look like I swing a hammer? You know, <laughs> we use real right. contractors. So you can get 
prices on your own. If you want to do it on your own and do the work and put the money into it, the property, you can certainly do that. But then long right. about there, they say, no, I don't have any money. So mm-hmm. you're back to the, having the conversations with them. Yeah, exactly. And, and and for y'all listening, everyone has a different approach. I'm interviewing Sharon because I want to know her approach. And everyone's going to have a different style and way of doing things. And that's why, you know, I have these interviews on the podcast. Not everyone's going to do things like Rachel. <laughs> so, you well, know. I have assigned contracts when it, a few when it's a smaller amount of money. But it's just in my area, this has been true with And I think things might be different for mobile home sellers than people that are in single family homes. They tend to think their property is always worth a lot more. And, you know, they they have a little bit different of an approach to it, I think, has been my Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah, yeah. It could also be, you know, like what you said in your area, you area. know, area to area kind of thing mm-hmm. as well, too. So let's talk about the closing process, because there's this misconception among probates that a lot of investors think that, oh, those probate deals, they just take too long to close. And there's such a process. I mean, people are scared of the process. So mm-hmm. can you kind of answer that question? I mean, does mm-hmm. it take longer to close a probate lead, probate deal versus a regular, you you know, transaction, single family, you know, just a regular real estate deal in general, or what's your opinion on that? In general, it's the, exactly the same as any other deal, because once they're to the point where they can sell the property, they just sell the property. Now, there's one exception, and this is a question that you should always ask, and that is, do you have a probate attorney helping you with this process? Mm-hmm. Because in almost every state, they can go to the courthouse and they can get the paperwork that they need to do this themselves. But everything has to be done in a certain order. And the only time I've ever had a problem was when the family decided to do it themselves and one time and they mucked it up and it took about more than six months to get that deal closed. And that's when I learned to put something in a contract because, you know, normally in a contract, you say I'll close between this time period and this time period. Right. We kept getting out of contract because they kept doing it wrong. They they simply were not equipped to do this, do these things in the right order. Like you have to notify the heirs and you have to do this and you have to do this. Well, I had to keep going back and hoping that they would extend the contract when in reality, at any time, somebody could have come in there and offered them 500 or $1,000 more and I could have lost that deal. So I talked to my real estate attorney, who's also an investor. And that is something that I do recommend if you're closing with attorneys, that you have an attorney that is actually an investor. But we talked about it and we then put a clause in every probate contract that said buyer will close, for instance, no sooner than 15 days, no longer than 30 days upon court slash attorney approval to close. Okay. So you put that that verbiage, yes. In the contract every single time. Mm -hmm. And that left the contract open. So in other words, you had a valid contract and then you had to close between 15 and 30 days after you got approval to close. And what that means is that the attorney's done everything that needs to be done or the family did everything in the right order and correctly. And that protects you from having a contract that becomes a dead contract. 
Exactly. So let's let's dial it back because we're talking about we already, you know, have the probate situation. If someone wants to exclusively, you know, pursue probate opportunities, how do you do that? I mean, I know you said that you accidentally got into it and I mm-hmm. accidentally I get, you know, people calling me and they just it just happens mm-hmm. to be in probate for mobile homes and their heirs. You know, how would you answer that question? What advice do you have for people who just want to exclusively learn and, and, and chase down these types of opportunities? Well, find out how to get the leads in your area. Now, across the U.S., there are more than 3,300 counties, and each one of those counties has a different process. Each state is different. Mm -hmm. So find out, Google probate plus and the plus sign your county, probate plus your sign and uh, your, your city. Now, in many areas, I know in Texas, they're online in most areas. You can just pull up your county and go probate leads for Harris County. And right there they are right there. So you could Hmm. sort those out if they were in probate. Then you could sort out by property type and you could sort out for mobile homes. Mm -hmm. Now, in my area, they were historically in the newspaper. And I thought that was so old school because (laughs) until I found out all over the country, some people have to go to the courthouse. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. so... Things are changing rapidly. What I found recently is that places that were never online are suddenly online. So you have to check all the time, but you want to hopefully find them online so that you can get a list every month. And this is why probates are so good, Rachel. There's a list this month of people that have passed away. I mean, it's these are people that need our help. You know, they need, they have a legal obligation to settle this estate. Mm-hmm. So we're not taking advantage of anybody. We are, in fact, their savior when you can go and help them with this. It's almost always a distressed property, something that they can't easily sell for full price. But these people need our help. So if you can focus on that, think this month is a list, next month is a list, and over time you build a a pretty decent sized list. And this is where direct mail comes in. Hey there, Rachel here. Have you enjoyed the show and podcast so far? Has it helped you with your own mobile home investing journey? And have you received value from it? If yes, then consider supporting the show. So how can you show your support? Well, there's a couple of things that you can do. The first thing you can do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or anywhere else the podcast can be heard. Go to www.adventuresinmobilehomes.com slash podcast to see the sites and links where you can leave a review on. I'll be ever so grateful if you do. And you may even get a shout out and your review read right on the show just for doing it. Another thing you can do is support the show and buy me a coffee. If you know me, you know how much I love coffee. If you've gotten a lot of good information out of the podcast and it has helped you as a mobile home investor, I'd love your support. Now, in the future, I'll be giving shout-outs to those who support me. So, if you do, that may be you. 
go to www.adventuresinmobilehomes.com slash support for more information on how you can show your support. Again, www.adventuresofmobilehomes.com slash support. And if you want to take it a step further and receive exclusive only content, consider being a member. On the support page there, you'll find info about how you can view exclusive content, including access to new videos and blog posts, a shout-out in a future episode for your support, access to video replays on my past speaking engagements, if you haven't seen me speak yet, and more. Check out www.adventuresofmobilehomes.com support to find out more. Thanks so much for continuing to listen to the podcast and for your support. Now. Back to the show. So every month, some people are coming off the list. They've sold their property. And next month, you're adding new people to your list. Right. Now, talk about direct mail. Direct, how long do you mail these people? Well, you mail them as long as the property's available, which mm. is going to be 12, 14, 15 months tops in this economy. So if you think about, if you're going to make eight or $10,000 and it call, you have to send... 10 letters and it costs you a dollar a letter, that's $10. What if it costs you $15 and you send to them for 15 months and you make $8,000? This is really easy math, but 81% of your deals, not your calls, but your deals will come at or beyond your fifth mailing. Mm-hmm. Now, another okay. important, so don't stop. The, the, right. the money is in staying in the game and consistency. So mail everybody every month. Right. The second statistic you need to know is that 90% of your competition will quit on or before the third mailing. Now, people in probate that are in this situation, they'll open the estate. They're raising their hand saying, I'm ready to move forward with selling the property. Okay. But what happens is, they look at it, you know, they gotta they've got to get mom's things out of there and they're like, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'll come back next week. And then that ends up being next month. So you get a few months down the road and they still haven't sold the property. That just means they're not quite there yet. And that's what you are you're engaging them with your direct mail. They may call you and say, I'm going to sell the property. I need a couple more months, in which case you say, Fine, I'll just keep reaching out every month. Okay. If, if that's okay with you. And they'll go, sure, it's fine. And then when everybody else has given up, I've bought properties at the one year mark, Rachel. And I'm the only letter they're getting. Oh wow. Yeah, you're so, you're I know you're persistent. You're really good at direct mail, y'all. If you need any advice on direct mail, Sharon's a person to go to. Well, and here's the thing. <laughs> it can all be outsourced now. And to put this into perspective, so 15 years ago when I started uh working in probates, it was a dollar fifty to send a letter. And I'm talking about a, a mail merged computer generated white letter that says, Dear Rachel or Dear mm-hmm. Mr. Smith. I'm contacting you about the property located at here. 
They do not want you to knock on their door. They don't want you to call them. They don't want you to send them a postcard that upsets them because you've mentioned an estate in a postcard. So there's a very certain way to do this to be successful. Now, 15 years ago, a letter like that was about $1.50 when stamps were, what, 38 cents or something? Today, stamps are, I don't even know how much, 60-some cents? Yes, yes. You can get a letter done for you. I mean, you don't do anything for under a dollar. Wow. You can automate it. You can set it up and it just goes out automatically through one of the direct mail companies. You know, I've got one that I really love. They're great. And But this is something that you, yes, you do have to look at the leads as they come in and go, yes, no, yes, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, or heck no, I don't go, I don't go there. <laughs> I have some of those, but. Right, um, right. You you take this time every month and you just set up your set up, you know, add these names to your list. Then you automate your mailing. Then you do what you do best, which is buy property. So I don't want right. this to seem like a big overwhelming chore. Trust me, when we did direct mail in-house and we're sending 800 letters a month, <laughs> it was it was painful. I'm oh not going goodness. to lie about I it. I used to do that too. It back was painful. When I started out as a wholesaler. No, not yes. never again. <laughs> well, d- direct mail marketing, though, is the way you reach all of these niche lists. You, it is a way that, I mean, if let's stop and think about this for a minute. Let's say if you're spending $500 a month on mail, $6,000 a year, how many deals do you have to get to pay for your entire year's mailing? Right. One. So I call it, it's marketing money. You need to just think about it differently because if you set this up and it brings you, let's say it brings you three or four deals a year, was it worth it? Sure. And then you can go on and do what you do your other things. You need three to five lead channels in your business, three to five ways to get deals. And I know one of yours is you connect personally with these people. You go go to the parks, that's one. What if tomorrow... You couldn't leave your home and you couldn't go to the parks. How would you get your deals then? Yeah. The other way is cold calling. But cold I know calling. what you said, probates, they don't. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> but, well, but I'm talking about any off market deals. It could be out of state owners, it could be high equity, lead, motivation stock leads, it could be pre foreclosure. It doesn't matter if what type of a lead it is. You have, you should have a way to continue your marketing. If one lead channel dries up, in other words, think back to when everybody was doing short sales and working pre-foreclosures and then they just went dead. Those people were dead in the water. But if you've got multiple ways to reach your people, then you you will never be in the position where you can't find a deal. Right, exactly. That is very important. A lot of mine is more, um, I do reach out now that I have, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I do phone calls with the networking, but it's, I always love doing the face-to-face. It was hard with COVID mm-hmm. to go to the mobile home dealerships, to see mm-hmm. the mobile home park managers, to talk to the contractors and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, but I do understand, you know, having those other marketing channels out there because it's actually just out there. It's your mm-hmm. name. It's your, you know, your, your phone number. And uh, y'all, this is more effective. I think because a lot of people, they come to me, they're like, I'm just going to put a bunch of bandit signs out, you know? And I just, 
it's a hit or miss with bandit side, mm-hmm. seriously, for me. So I think these are very more targeted. You know, these people, their situation is just very fragile, mm-hmm. you know, so you there is kind of an art. And this is what Sharon teaches to, you know, pursuing these types of opportunities. The question I had for you, Sharon, was are these probate leads straight from the courthouse or do you purchase them from a third party company? How does some that some areas you can purchase the leads? There is a a lead source that is just where they've just started getting probates all over the country where you can get the leads very affordably. But in general, the leads used to be as much as ten dollars a lead, which was ridiculous. A dollar a lead was ridiculous. Thirty cents a lead is drop dead affordable skip right. trace leads. So right. that that dynamic is is changing and I mean it's literally changing monthly. So anybody that wants to hear about that I've got don't have the information right in front of me but they can email me at sharon at sharonbornholt.com and I can send them that information. But I think the other thing that people totally miss the the mark on. You and I are big networkers. So networking is number one, the most underrated way of generating leads on the planet. People don't know how powerful that is to just go talk to people, go to meetings, go meet people in your industry. But the other way is through content creation. You cannot be the best kept secret in town and think you're going to get a great response from your marketing. You really can't. So you, you need to do something. Rachel has a podcast. You know, I've had a podcast. That's not for everyone, but there are many other ways that you can create content. You can do little reels. You can do walkthroughs of your properties and chop them up. There's a new tool that I found that I'm in love with called Opus Clip. Okay. It's, I think it's opusclip.io. So let's assume Rachel went out and did a thing where she did a walkthrough of a mobile home and she's pointing out all the things that need to be done and she's got a 15-minute video. You can put that video into Opus Clip, which costs you like a, it's, there's a free version to start where you can try it out. And then for a whole year, it's like $100. And okay. it would take your 10-minute video and give you back 20 videos. It'll wow. give you, you can choose zero to 30 seconds or 30 seconds to one minute. And it puts captions on them and it resizes them for every platform. Wow. It is, it is <laughs> phenomenal. So let's say you've not got any content or you want to increase your presence so that when someone sees your name, maybe on your bandit sign, they'll go, oh, hey, I saw Steve on Facebook and this little clip where he's talking about mobile homes or whatever. It is a phenomenal way to market yourself and stop and think about how many clips you have on a podcast episode, Rachel. You I mean, you choose zero to 30 seconds or 30 seconds to one minute. You pop that video in there and guess what? You just got a whole ton of content. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So lots of things to think about here. Going back to those leads, how accurate are those leads in your experience that you found? Or how do you actually vet these lead companies if you're just going to be purchasing these types well, of probate leads? I have never been a fan of purchase leads till I found this new company because they were too expensive. And often um, I've had discussions with them where they would. Mm-hmm. So you, let me back up just a little bit. You need four pieces of information to work in probates. You need the name and address of the deceased. So that's mm-hmm. the property that'll be sold and the name and address of the a personal representative. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. Once that 
the house is actually in probate, that information is available. Now, if somebody tries to sell you a lead and they say something to you like, this is so fresh, well, I don't have that information, but I've got like the name of the deceased and their home address. Mm -hmm. Guess what? They're working obituaries and don't do that. Oh, wow. Because A, you cannot buy the property Remember, you have to, it has to be in probate. That has to be open before you can buy it. And you cause people to be in a very painful situation when you do that, when you do that. So if they tell you that, you just say, I know that's not true. Once they're in probate, all the information is available. So don't buy those leads. They're not really leads and you can't buy the property. But I tell everyone, go look online, see if you can't get them for free. In many areas of the country, they're simply free. You just download them. And then you look through and see which ones you want. But vetting the companies, that's a tougher task. And I mm-hmm. I would never pay 5 or $10 for a single lead ever, ever. Okay. okay. And I think, I mean, it's just not necessary. Right, right, right. All right. So we talked about kind of like these leads, a lead generation, working with these sellers and all that. And then we talked about the closing process. So let's talk about the buyers. I mean, we talk about the buyers list because your exit strategy is wholesaling. When you have these probate leads, do you recommend like someone starting out brand new, would you recommend they start to buy, build their buyers list first? How would they do that? Or do you think they should just go out and just start figure out where they want to, you know, do business in and then start looking for probate leads? Or should they do both at the same time? How, how would that you, work? You, you can kind of do both. But remember... If you if you put out a paper at your RIA meeting, now my RIA meeting, real estate investors meeting, if you don't know what that is, we'll have two or 300 people show up live every month. We probably have 700 members. If you pass around a paper and say, do you want to be on my buyer's list? What's your criteria? About 95% of those at least will have no way to buy property. They've not, they're not hooked up with a bank. They don't have any money. They don't have a private money lender. So what I recommend you do is go to your, investors meeting. Okay. See who is actually buying the type of property you have. You're looking for someone that is doing nonstop rehabs or someone that is actively building a portfolio. Okay. Now, like I said, you only need a handful of these people, but go and find out who they are and where they buy. And they'll tell you these, your real buyers will say, I buy in these areas. I do not buy in these zip codes. Mm-hmm. And the next thing you say, and you've got to get over not being able to say this. I've learned this one the hard way. What's your source of cash? Okay. You want them to say, it's private money. I have a an equity partner. I have a relationship with a, a local portfolio lender who is. And once they can answer that question, like here, there's a bank called River City. And River City is known for doing investor loans. If they say that they're, they work with River City, I say, oh, who do you work with? They'll say this person. I know this is a real person. This is a real deal. They might say that they partner with somebody who I know is a private money lender, which you will also learn that from your RIA meetings. Go and find out who these people are and then find out what they want. And then it, 
it will be if once you learn how to buy property, that's really a deal. That's something else you'll learn through your network. Okay. And you can simply call them up. I used to call them from the property and I'd say, hey, Dan, I'm here at this property. Here's the deal. I'll give you a 24-hour head start on it before I put it out to my list. And I would literally, because it was a vacant property, I would get permission from the from the seller and put a lockbox on the, on the house right then. Now, mind you, I never sent anyone out there that I would not personally vouch for. Right. It's, it's always a vacant house, but don't do that because you'll ruin your reputation doing that. But they would go look at the property and nine times out of 10, I knew my buyers so well, they would just say, yes, I'll I'll, I'll buy it. I'll send you, send you over the earnest money. I'll, I'll mail it tonight or drop it off or whatever. Okay, good, good, good info to know. Now, once you have your buyers list and you ha- say you already have a property, in your case, you close on it because you're doing mm-hmm. a double closing. You know, how do you negotiate with your buyers or do you even negotiate in terms of your fee? You know, how no. does that even work? <laughs> no, I don't negotiate. Um, I I know over you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. So when I buy a property, I know that it's a good deal. I know what the uh, repairs are going to be. So when I buy it, before I make my offer, I know what the repairs are going to be for the rehabber or mm-hmm. alternately, if an, a landlord is going to buy it, I might look at this property and say they're not going to change out the cabinets because it's a B minus neighborhood. So you can buy slimmer deals if you've got landlords to sell the properties to. You should know that. You can have two sets two sets of figures. But no, I would make a, an offer that I knew would was a safe offer for my buyer. So I always figured repairs a little high and figured comps a little bit on the narrow side because I didn't you don't want to use inflated comps and then not real numbers on the fix up. You don't want to do that. So I would I would simply make my best deal and then back my fee out for my buyer. And that's the price. I would just say it's this price. And because I knew to how to do that and because I left them, they knew that I had figured the repairs high. I would say I think they're going to be about $30,000, but I figured them at 35, 36. And I would give, tell them what I figured. And then I would say the comps are between here and here. And I used the median comp. I didn't use the, the high outlier comps. Mm-hmm. So they had, they had a safety net there that they knew that I was offering them a property that at a good price that they didn't have to market for and they didn't have to go look for. So I had people on my list that also had careers. Okay. And they they were almost full time rehabbers, and that they 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 had their houses going all the time. They were smart enough to know that it was a good deal, and they were never going to do direct mail or any kind of marketing. They bought strictly right. from wholesalers. Okay, but you you build your reputation by doing it right, and there, you have to learn these things. It's a dangerous thing to not know how to buy property. That's probably the hardest thing I think is to know what to offer. Right. And then making that offer without powering down, you just have yes. to get used to doing that. That's a that's a learned skill. Exactly, exactly. Now, in terms of showing the property, I mean, do you provide pictures, video, or do you have an on lockbox, or do you personally meet with these buyers at the properties? 
as long as it's one of my, you know, my handful of known investors, uh, right. I just give them the lockbox code. Okay. I never don't would let a stranger have that someone I didn't personally know because right. they could go and steal the copper out of the house or something. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And then once they like you have a buyer and they say, oh, you know, I want to buy purchase this property. How does that work? Do they give you earnest money? How long do you have give them the time to close it at 30 days? And do they have an inspection process? How do you do that? They're 30 days and they can buy it. They can have it inspected, but I won't do reduce the price there or make any repairs because they're already getting, you know, they're probably, if it's a $200,000 house that needs, if I were just starting with the 70% rule, mm -hmm. then, you know, that, that would be 140 less 40,000 repairs or whatever, they're getting a $200,000 house for $100,000. So no, I'm not negotiating unless they, unless something is found that I missed, mm -hmm. which having owned a home inspection company is probably never going to happen because I mean, I can spot structural issues, yes, things like things like that. And if I'm unsure about the furnace, if it's iffy, I figure a new furnace. If the AC is over 11 or 12 years old, I figure a new unit. Whether they put it in or not is up to them. Same thing with the roof. If a roof is beyond a certain lifespan, it goes in the figures. Now, if they decide to wait, and oftentimes landlords will say, I'm not doing all that work right now, that's fine. When the roof comes due, that's on their dime. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's okay. But to answer your question, no, I, unless I've somehow messed up, I don't negotiate. They don't ask me to negotiate okay. because they're getting a they're getting a good deal. And if you all if you give them always your best offer, right, then then they're not going to come back and quibble over it. Now, I do have one older gentleman that he was. He was probably coming up on 70 at the time. Mm -hmm. He was old school and he had to negotiate. I mean, if it was a dollar, he wanted it for 50 cents. So what I, what <laughs> right. I would do, okay. what, I, that, what I would do is I would always raise the price $1,000. I would get to my price. I would raise it $1,000. I would offer it to him for the price plus 1000 And he would say, Sharon, I've got to have it $1,000 cheaper. And I'd go, well... Okay. And right. then after a while, he would forget to ask for the reduction and I just made another $1,000. So we're getting towards the end of the podcast, but I've got a couple other questions real quick. First, do you work with other wholesalers who say, Sharon, I can bring a buyer? You know, how does that work? Because I'm seeing a lot of that right now, actually, as a wholesaler, mm. wholesalers are coming. I can bring a buyer. You know, how does that work? Or does it even work for you? Well, it doesn't work for me. You know, I'm, <laughs> I want a buyer. I'm, I don't want to have to pay somebody to bring me a buyer Unless it's a property that maybe I bought in an area when I was new, I didn't always, I would miss the mark every so often on a property. Mm -hmm. If that's the case and someone wants to bring you a buyer, then it's worth it. You've got to keep your reputation so you need to close on the deal. Mm -hmm. And if, if it involves doing that, then you can do that. But in general, you've negotiated your profit out of this deal. So you want to build your buyer's list. You don't want to give away part of your money for a buyer. If you if you set it up properly, you don't have to do that. How about on the on the flip side? You know, they say, "Sharon, I've got a seller and you've got the buyers." Has that happened? How do you handle that? I've I've split a deal a couple of times when I had no work into it. Okay. You know, if uh, if somebody comes and brings you a deal and they said, I know you've got a buyer's list and, and you've done not one thing to get this deal and there's $10,000 to be made. 
Sure, I'll split the deal with them five and five. Okay. okay. But I write the, I make sure the contract is written up so that I'm in the deal. Right, right, right. So you'd actually have to make a contract between you and that wholesaler, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah, okay. or a contract with me listed as both of us listed on the sales and purchase agreement somehow. I go always go back to my attorney is the best way to do this. But yes, okay. you can do, you have to stop and think. If you've invested a lot of time and money, let's say if I've been marketing to this seller for a year and somebody wants to then bring me a buyer and me split the profit with them, when mm-hmm. I have a buyer, I'm not going to do that. But if I have nothing in this deal and they come to me for a buyer, then sure, I'll split with them. I didn't do anything. They're willing to do it because they don't have a buyer. It's a win-win for everybody. So I do think you have to get creative sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and there's also people, they just need the confidence. Like they have the seller, but they don't even have it under contract. Right, know? right. And so. then, yes, and there are always things you can do. And don't assume that that they even want to split, say, what does this deal look like if you were, if we were to put it together? What does it look like for you? Exactly. Exactly. So for anyone wanting to get started, wanting to learn more about probates and, you know, kind of like what you do, probates, wholesaling and all that, what advice would you have? Like, what can they do? They're brand new right now. What is the first thing they need to do to even get started in, in this? They need to join their real estate investment club. Number is number one, and number okay. that's where you need a you need mentors. Number two is reach out to people like uh, Rachel or to me. I have a ton of free content on my blog and my podcast, over nine hundred pieces of content. So you can totally get started for free. But I have to tell you, as time goes on, if you want to scale, you're going to need to invest in yourself. And I've done it. Rachel's done it. We've all done it. You know, invest in a mentor, invest in a course. You know, I have a course for probates called Probate Investing Simplified. That's a start to finish process, how to do it, how to understand the process, how to fix your mindset and understand theirs, and then how to do the marketing. But it's all about education. I think... It's very dangerous to start in real estate without some basic education. You, you don't want to lose money. And there are plenty of people that will partner with you, that will mentor. You know, if you bring a deal and say, I've got a seller, but I don't know what to do with it, they'll partner with you 100%. Exactly. Exactly. So that brings me to my next question. Let's talk about resources. You mentioned your blog. You mentioned your mm-hmm. podcast. You mentioned your courses. Can you tell everyone more about your course and where they can find you, your blog and the name of your podcast. So people sure. can check it out. So the podcast is called Let's Talk Real Estate Investing. I have a mix of solo shows where I teach something and a lot of interviews from industry experts. So that's Let's Talk Real Estate Investing. Uh, the blog is Louisville Gals Real Estate Blog. That is where there's a hub there that links off to the podcast. You can listen, you can watch the all the video podcasts are on that as well as on my YouTube channel. And then, of course, the probate course is probateinvestingsimplified.com. And they can get a freebie uh, that's a probate investing starter kit, which will give them a sample letter. It will give them the graphic of the probate process so that they can just stick it up on the wall when they forget and some other information. And they can get that at probateinvestingsimplified.com forward slash starter kit. And that's completely that's completely free. And there are some other freebies over on the blog. 
Very cool. I didn't even know you had that probate uh, investing starter kit. I might have to check it out for myself. Check um, it out. Yeah. And I actually was on Let's Talk Real Estate Investing, y'all. So definitely check out. I'll put all the links to everything we talked about here in the episode show notes for the podcast. So good stuff today, Sharon. Where can people find you if they want to contact you? What are your socials out there uh, online? How about if I send them to you? I've got to, I'll send them to you because I have Instagram, LinkedIn. I, I'm pretty much everywhere as Sharon Bornholt. Okay. Um, but I'll, I'll send those to you. And if you have a question, you can email me at Sharon at SharonBornholt.com. Good stuff. Good stuff, y'all. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today, Sharon. I really appreciate it. And maybe we'll have you on the podcast again sometime in the future. Thank you all for listening. Check out Sharon's stuff. I'll put all the links here in the show notes. This is Rachel Hernandez, aka Mobile Home Girl of the Adventures of Mobile Homes podcast, signing off. Thanks for tuning in. Bye, y'all. Thanks, Rachel. So there you have it. My guest interview with my good podcaster and real estate investor friend, Sharon Vornholt. So what did you think? Did you learn a lot from the interview? I hope so. Now, as mentioned in the interview, be sure to check out Sharon's free gift to you as a valued listener of the podcast, which I'll link up here right in the show notes. Plus, be sure to check out Sharon's websites and all her socials, which I'll also link up here. Definitely contact her if you have any questions about probates and working these types of leads as a real estate investor. And let her know I sent you. She's definitely the expert on the subject. Now, as of this recording, I'm working on a new coaching program, especially for mobile home investors. In fact, I'm in the process of starting a private podcast where I'll be talking more about what's in store for the coaching program including the behind the scenes of what I've been doing for my own mobile home investing business and other projects that I'm working on. So if you'd like to get the inside scoop on what I've been doing lately, definitely check out my support page. Because the private podcast, video trainings, video commentaries, and updates are just some of the perks of becoming a member of my support page. And as a member, you'll get exclusive access to special content on different topics around mobile home investing and access to detailed posts where I go into more detail about specific topics within mobile home investing that you won't find anywhere else. I'm telling you, this is exclusive content and behind-the-scenes footage on my own mobile home investing business. Plus, you also get discounts to special events. And here's the kicker discounts to my existing courses and classes, including a special extra discount to my Dodd-Frank and Safe Act course, especially for mobile home investors, just for members of my support page. And let's not forget special access to the Discord community where you can ask questions, network with others, post up your deals, and discuss all things mobile home investing with others. I'm telling you, we've got a lot of interesting discussions happening right now in the Discord community, so you definitely want to check it out. And also as a member, you'll also get an extra special discount on my upcoming coaching program, so you definitely don't want to miss out on the special deal. Plus, one more thing, and this is an exclusive I just made my coffee roasting and brewing class free for all members on my support page. 
Now, this is a special class I made specifically for the donors of a film that I'm currently consulting on for my mobile home expertise with an award-winning director and producer. Because you know how much I love coffee. And you'll definitely hear more about this film project behind the scenes as a member. So sign up as a member today. So if you're interested, go to www.adventuresofmobilehomes.com support for more information on how you can support me and become a member, including all the perks that you'll get that I just mentioned. Again, www.adventuresofmobilehomes.com support. And if you'd like to get the show notes and links to this episode, including Sharon's free gift to you, go to www.adventuresinmobilehomes.com slash 80. Again, www.adventuresinmobilehomes.com slash 80. Well, that's about it for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of my guest interview with my good podcaster and real estate investor friend, Sharon Vornholt, on the show. I hope you learned a lot about probates as a lead generation strategy as a real estate investor and got a lot of valuable information from the interview. And yes, I'll be having more of these guest interviews in the future every now and then. So stay tuned. And if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please be sure to share it with family and friends and be sure to follow me and subscribe. And if you have some time, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser if you've enjoyed the podcast. It really helps me to keep motivated and come up with more content to help you become a better mobile home investor. That's about it for now. Until next time, this is Rachel Hernandez, aka Mobile Home Girl of the Adventures of Mobile Homes podcast, signing off. Thanks for tuning in.